Hello and welcome once again to the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. My name is Tony Heil, the Director of Communications here at the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter, which is a mouthful. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about a really exciting topic and one that will be interesting to everybody, not just people with ALS, but anyone interested in the future of technology to help all sorts of people who are battling disease, brain-computer interface. And I will be speaking with Melanie Freed-Oaken. She's way out in Oregon, which is very far from where we are, and we're using the special technology of computers and phones to get this done. Uh, So in past podcasts, which you can find on iTunes at ALS Philadelphia, or on our website, alsphiladelphia.org slash podcasts. You've heard from legislators, you've heard from people with ALS, you've heard from walk team captains, you've heard from staff, researchers, and more, and I hope that you're able to find a lot of value in hearing those stories. And if you have topics that you want to hear, or questions you have for previous guests, or just questions in general, feel free to email me anytime at tony at alsphiladelphia.org. Again, our guest today is Melanie Freed Oaken. She's going to be teaching us a lot about brain computer interface. And this particular podcast, because of the topics um, we're discussing, we're going to dedicate it to Scott Mackler and the Mackler family. Scott Mackler was a pioneer in this kind of technology here in Delaware. And we probably wouldn't be at the place we are without a lot of his hard work and the hard work of his family that continues today. So, Melanie, thanks for joining our podcast to discuss this topic. My pleasure. I look forward to sharing this exciting work with you. So let's start with what did you start with first? Uh, This kind of technology in your background or ALS generally? Um, So I am a speech-language pathologist, and I have been working on um, technology for augmentative communication for about 35 years, though my children tell me I've been doing it for 200 years. Um, I've always done assistive technology for people with um, complex communication needs. So not only those with ALS or degenerative disease, but also for children with cerebral palsy or autism or uh, adults with other disabilities. So it fits for um, everyone, not only for PALS, but uh, for sure the area of brain-computer interface Uh, is one that um, should be addressed um, for the population of individuals and families with ALS. So I imagine that this kind of technology has really improved, not just in the past couple decades, but in the past 200 years, there's been a big leap. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, We follow, actually, general technology. So, um, in general, assistive technology, as you know, Tony, is um, looking for solutions to help individuals who can't rely on either speech, writing, or uh, movement to control a computer or uh, communication device uh, to often replace or compensate for for, uh, functions that are no longer available. Uh, So for sure we've been doing it for a long time. Brain-computer interface um, isn't as old as um, general assistive technology. I'd say that the field in general um, in the uh, 1970s we were starting to talk about a thought translation device of how do we get items uh, in front of us uh, if we can't talk or type. 
Um, now we're not so much talking about thought translation as we are looking at ways that we can connect uh, to a computer through brainwaves. And, you know, it, this actually sounds very interesting to me coming from a research presentation on stem cells and where that there's a technology that exists or a research component, in that case stem cells, where originally the research was looking at one solution and then kind of realizing we might be able to get an answer quicker if we try it in this different way. In this case, maybe brain-computer interface, this kind of work will do better if we do what you were just saying in terms of how to understand people's, use people's thoughts instead of reading people's thoughts because that's not what this is. Correct. This is not a, uh, you're not reading anybody's thoughts. And brain-computer interface is being used for a lot of things. Um, it's being used um, by neuroscientists to learn how the brain works and uh, how to map different areas of function to the brain and to the electricity of the brain. It's being used by rehabilitation scientists to figure out how to return function, for example, when someone loses the ability to use their hand because of a stroke or spinal cord injury, so we're seeing if BCI can be used to return function. Uh, it's being used to replace function, and that would be for people who can no longer rely on hand movement for typing, um, and it's being used to enhance function. So along with other technologies, such as functional electrical stimulation, it's being used to stimulate muscles to make them do more than um, they can do because of disability. So lots of different reasons. It's being um, researched on animals, so monkeys and rats, and is now entering experimentation for humans. So you, you will see many different kinds of labs that are looking at brain-computer interfaces. And there are many different kinds of brain-computer interfaces as well. Uh, we talk about two major kinds. One's called invasive brain-computer interface, and one's called non-invasive brain-computer interface. And by the way, brain-computer interface, or BCI, is often synonymous with brain-machine interface. So you might see BMI also. So I can go through, Tony, and tell you what the difference is between an invasive BCI and a non-invasive BCI? Well, um, yeah, I want to know exactly how that works because when you talk about this I, I am confused a bit or just want to understand you're, you're gonna put these things on your head and how do you get to this idea that hey we should try this you know if you're a researcher trying to develop this technology right so the things on your head that's that's the difference between invasive and non-invasive. So there's a group of scientists around the country and actually around the world that are actually putting electrodes or a circuit board right close to someone's brain. So they're placing the electrodes or implant, implanting them right near the surface. And this requires surgery. Mm-hmm. It must be really carefully monitored because infection is possible or some kind of movement of the electrode might occur. But with these 
um, implanted electrodes, you literally have a small set of wires that, that are coming out of your skull. And the electrodes are really effective at reading the electrical activity that your brain is creating. So that's one type of brain-computer interface. There are a few people around the country who have invasive BCIs implanted now. And one big program that um, is a leader in invasive brain-computer interface is at Brown University. It's called BrainGate. So if people are interested in invasive BCI, they should look up BrainGate. So if they're going to be... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. If you're going to be doing an invasive thing like that, I guess it's not just that you're putting these electrodes on the brain, but you got to put them in the right spot, right? You can just, just like if you're doing heart surgery, you have to be in the right place. You can't just willy-nilly throw stuff on the brain. Correct. So there are neurosurgeons whose job it is to... Uh, examine different functions of the brain um, while, while your skull is opened. So, for example, there's a group of neurosurgeons when an individual has epilepsy and they're um, going in to work on the area of the brain that's causing all the um, extra electrical um, activity that causes seizures. And while the skull is opened, they're looking at different functions of the brain. So we know some about locations of different functions. So these implanted electrodes for brain-computer interface are very carefully placed in areas of the brain for motor activity or speech activity. And do you have to get, like, very exact, or do they just know that this is the region of the brain and we're going to put something there because, I mean, there's still so much we don't know about the brain. That's correct. You're right. And it is exact, but we're certainly learning every day. Um, invasive BCI is not the most common type of brain-computer interface. The more tom common type, which everyone can try, is called non-invasive brain-computer interface. And that's what our, our lab works on and many other people around the country. So let me explain it to you and then give you an example of why you use it and how it works. Okay. So a non-invasive brain-computer interface uses EEG. Many people who are listening to this podcast have had an EEG, one of the ways to rule out other diseases before you get the diagnosis of ALS is to go through many different neurological tests, and EEG is one of them. So you wear a cap very much like a bathing cap that has little holes in it. And each hole is where you place an electrode. So the electrode gets actually glued on to your scalp through your hair with conductive gel. And it's the gel and the electrode together that can pick up the electricity or the brain waves that are being created by your brain. So you wear this cap with electrodes. The electrodes are connected to a computer. That's what you look, so you look pretty funny wearing this stuff. And to use any non-invasive BCI, you need to wear this cap. So now you might say, so what's happening once I wear this cap? Mm -hmm. Well, what's happening is the computer is going to 
pick up the electrical signals in your brain, and those signals will change depending on what you're looking at or what you're doing. There are many different kinds of uh, functions for this non-invasive brain-computer interface, which is a mouthful in itself. Some of the ones that you might see on the news or in YouTubes are watching a cursor move to the right or to the left, and that can move a wheelchair to the right or to the left, or a robotic arm, or a cursor on a screen. What you do is you think about moving your hand, your right hand, and that will move the right cursor. Or you think about moving your left hand, and that will move the left cursor. And what's happening when you think about moving your right hand is the electrical activity is being recorded by the computer and translated into that movement. So it's almost like you're thinking about moving your right hand on a mouse pad, and that's translated through the brain waves into a right hand movement. And you'll see the cursor on the screen move to the right or to the left. So that's one kind of brainwave that's being measured to look at movement. Another kind of brainwave that's being measured is for spelling. And this is for a lot of our um, individuals with ALS or other dis diseases or chronic conditions where you can't use either a keyboard or voice recognition software. So often these are for individuals who are very locked in and have very little other options. And what, you, what happens is you see either a grid of letters on the screen or one letter at a time. And when the letter you want lights up, there's an automatic reaction in your brainwave. The computer can read that reaction or change in your brainwave, and that's taken as a keystroke. Right. Now, the brainwaves have all different kinds of letters and numbers. So uh, neuroscientists or clinical neurologists can read those brainwaves and know exactly what's happening. And the brainwave that's used for keystroking is called P300. So there are some P300 spellers. And what they're doing is looking for this big blip at P300 in the brainwave and taking that as your letter selection. And I guess that makes sense that they can do that because, as at least right now, we couldn't look into your, have something on your head and say, oh, Melanie is thinking about um, the music from Star Wars or, you know, the text from her favorite book. She, we know the electrical impulses in her brain are going right because that's something that we can understand. Not at all. It's not a thought translation device at all. Right. We cannot read your mind at all. In fact, for many people with ALS who are familiar with switches and single switches to control a computer, this is the same. So the switch is the change in the brainwave. So it's just an on-off switch. So we can read a change in the brain wave in reaction to a letter or a picture or a symbol that's in front of you. 
but we cannot read what thoughts are. So this would, when someone's working with someone on this, because the, either the computer or a person, even though the, the text at the beginning is English in the end, it's like talking to someone that speaks a different language and trying to communicate. Like when you're finally having that conversation. So what will appear on the screen if you're using a speller is the letters that you're choosing. And then those letters can be spoken out or printed or however you want to. But you are using a different access method for your computer mm -hmm. than usual. So that's how, that's what it's doing. Um, what, how has this, this improved over the years? So how did we, I imagine that it's a lot better now than it was when Dr. Mackler started getting involved with it. Um, I know that we, there's been great research happening here in Pennsylvania. Uh, Andrew Geronimo at Penn State, her, um, Penn State University has been doing some stuff. My friend Dave Eide, um, who I'd like to mention, who uh, passed away from ALS, he was doing research with Andrew Geronimo. So I imagine that this technology has been improving in terms of what it can do over the past years. Yes, I also would like to acknowledge there's a big group at the University of Pittsburgh. Oh, good. Um, yes, under um, Dr. Andrew Schwartz. Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing more work on uh, animal models, uh, but there's a lot of good research on BCI in Pennsylvania. Um, for sure, this has changed. It has changed as all of technology changes. So our hardware is better. Our software that is written to pick up the brain waves and then analyze what they mean is much better. Think about what that electrode has to do when you sneeze or you blink mm. or you cough or you move your head in any way. That creates all these really crazy waves that we call artifact. And the computer has to be able to say, oh, that's not the um, correct signal that I'm needing for spelling. So it, it has to do away with all the crazy signals and really identify which brainwave is correctly identifying a letter. So it's a very hard task, and the software and hardware keep getting better and better and better. I imagine the that electrodes are even getting better. In a few years, and not now, we'll move away from needing that conductive gel in your hair to having what's called a dry electrode system. Because imagine, Tony, if you have ALS and um, are at the point of needing a brain-computer interface, it's difficult for you, to have to, for you to have your hair washed often. Right. I mean, you can't scratch your hair because you have dry gel in it. So it's not that practical yet for people who really need it. So in addition to the technology improving, I imagine that our understanding of the brain has been improving through the use of this technology. Absolutely. There's really four groups of people who are using brain-computer interface. One group are the neuroscientists who are doing it to really understand the functions of the brain and how the brain works. Another group would be the rehab scientists. 
that are helping individuals regain or restore function. Another group are the engineers, the computer scientists and electrical engineers who are figuring out how to analyze those brain waves, just like they're analyzing all electrical signals. And then the fourth group, Tony, actually is industry, because brain-computer interfaces can be used for gaming, can be used for any kind of target detection. Um, in fact, there's a not expensive uh, brain-computer interface on the market now that people buy that's called Emotive that individuals might want to try. And how can people learn about that? I, actually, you can go right on the Internet and put in Emotive, E-M-O-T-I-V, and there is a system that they can try. That's, that's amazing because I, I, this seems like something that's so sci-fi that's so out there to myself and so many other people and to realize that I'm sure you're not going to buy it at Target, but that there's things out there that you can start using now. It's, it's just crazy where this is going. Right. I'm not sure about the reliability of it. Right. Especially for something as important as communication or computer access. Mm-hmm. Um, but to learn about it and to use it for a small activity such as gaming would be... I mean, recreation is so important for people who don't have very much function that uh, it's a great opportunity. Well, I would like to, you know, try those kind of things, and I, th I imagine that the more kinds of applications for BCI, the more that researchers learn about it, there's more feedback from not just people from with ALS, but general population people that can kind of look at the pluses and minuses of how it works. Absolutely, and it's that's being looked at internationally. So as many purposes as you can think of for a mouse and a keyboard... That's as many purposes as can be used for this, because it's just an access to technology. And since there's great work being done, as you said, in Pittsburgh um, with animals and BCI, which then can transfer to humans in terms of how it can work, uh, and we're understanding animal brains more, um, I imagine that this helps with our greater understanding of helping brain health with ALS and with other diseases, too, uh, on the human level by, by understanding this complex organ. Yes, and its relationship to the environment. What do you mean a relationship to the environment? Um, so what, what the brain is capable of for um, human interaction with, with person to person and what the brain is capable of um, interaction with... Um, tools or activities and, and where specific functions are in the brain and if we can restore functions where there's brain damage, all of those areas of, are certainly of key um, interest to BCI scientists. That's, it's really neat to me thinking about books I've read with linguists and scientists that nothing's compartmentalized when you're studying something about ALS and this kind of technology. You're really learning about a whole, by a lot of different things, whether it's language, communications, technology, different diseases, just human evolution itself. Yeah, and that actually talks to who should be on a BCI team, Tony. 
So really, we're talking about people from many, many, many different fields. Just like you said, we can learn so much information for different fields. Mm -hmm. So a BCI team includes engineers, computer scientists, neuroscientists, and rehab specialists. The one group that has not yet um, been included in all BCI teams and really needs to are the experts. The people who are locked in and need this technology for function. So one of my big pushes is to get individuals with ALS, spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, or other forms of severe speech and physical impairment onto the BCI research teams. Because they're the ones who have to give us the ideas, mm -hmm. help us design the systems, test the systems, and then give us feedback. The people with ALS cannot only be the participants in the research studies, but they really need to be the integral members of the research and development teams. And I imagine it's not just the people with ALS, but their caregivers who are with them all the time are valuable to be there, even if they're not doing the computer interface themselves, but like being part of that feedback to see how it's working uh, and, and those kind of communications that they do on a daily basis. Absolutely. Because right now, the, just setting the system up, so putting the cap on with the gel and making sure it works through the computer, that is no small task. And making sure that the system is reliable and working every day is a very difficult task for caregivers. Right. So we're not even yet at a really good, safe, reliable BCI system for someone who has severe speech and physical impairment to use independently. There are some research studies that are looking at independent home use. Um, the biggest study, um, which is very well organized, is out of the Wadsworth Center in Albany, New York. I've heard about that. Yes, in fact, the Pittsburgh VA is a participant in this project. So the independent BCI study has 24-7 technical support because really it's not at the independent use yet level yet, either for the caregivers or for the people with the severe speech and physical impairments. We're getting there. For sure, as the hardware gets better and the software gets better and, and we understand more about the brain and the uses of this for access to computers, we'll get there, um, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense if you're the kind of person that needs this kind of device to communicate, you probably need a caregiver on a very constant basis anyway because if you were able to use your hands... You wouldn't need this. Right. I actually see BCI as being one of the options with many options. So, for example, you and I have the option of using when we're writing. We can use a keyboard. We can use a pen. We can use a pencil. We can write in the air with our finger. Uh, we have many different options. And someone with severe speech and physical impairment, they need many different options, too. Some days, some days they're more tired. Some days they're really alert. They need to be able to talk quickly to caregivers. They need to be able to talk privately with their family. 
So they need as many options as well. And brain-computer interface should be one option in a long list of different um, possibilities for them. Well, this brings up two different points I wanted to ask about. One um, is even though you're not moving, I imagine the concentration involved with this as a person with ALS can be kind of exhausting as if it takes a long time to be picking the letters. Uh, and two, when should people with ALS or who are locked in in some other disease um, start experimenting with this? It sounds earlier from listening to you than I might have expected. So let's go to your first pro uh, question about the attention and focus that's required. It's huge. It cannot be understated how much attention is needed for this task. Because as I said, you look at the letter that you want for typing and your brainwave changes when you see the letter M for Melanie. Well, you have to do that letter M 15 times before the computer says, okay, I'm sure Melanie wanted to select the letter M. So you know how in augmentative communication we talk about how slow communication rate is? Mm -hmm. it's, even, it's even slower with BCI. We're not quite there yet to make it good, functional, fast communication. But the amount of attention required is tremendous. In fact, in my lab, we're doing some studies right now to see if there's any way to increase or improve attention and focus to learn how to use a BCI. And we're trying a mindfulness meditation um, technique. We're trying an attention training process technique because as you increase your attention, you will get better at the task. But it is an exhausting task. You're absolutely right. And that's one of the downfalls. Well, and that, I know you're going to talk about the other point, too, but I know that Dr. Zach Simmons at our Hershey Clinic has been doing research on mindfulness. And when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, that sounds neat. But now I'm realizing that there's even more potential for what that could mean for a person with ALS for using different equipment. Yeah, you're right. Um, for the second question, when should you start? I would love for um, individuals with um, motor and speech challenges to be part of every research study. Mm -hmm. We're really not yet at the point of saying BCI is an available access method for computers. Uh, so participation is mostly um, at the research level in different laboratories that are around the country. And I think that it should be, should be tried probably at the same time as you're trying eye gaze as a technique. Or, I mean, if, if it's available, there's no reason to stop start at any time, right? Because yep. you're always getting more valuable information as a researcher. Right. And let me tell you, when my sons were little, they would have loved to try BCI for um, the access to their games to make gaming faster. So it could be a full family activity. Yeah, and gaming, like you said, it, it improves the brain health. It's really something that there's a lot of research on the past few years. Even simple games that people sometimes make fun of help with all sorts of other cognitive issues. So um, using BCI to help with gaming can help tremendously, I'm sure, with all sorts of other brain health issues. Right. Besides being recreation. I mean, people with severe speech and physical impairment have lost the access to so much recreation. 
So this is yet another way to um, offer them opportunities. So you're telling me that the next time one of my friends at the ALS gives me a friend um, a game request or Candy Crush, I have to accept it? There you go. And you have to provide them with whatever BCI is available. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, I do know that a lot of my friends who have ALS on Facebook, they do use a lot of games and they use them with a technology that they have available to them now and it provides them with a lot of benefits that are intangible. Right. You got it. And this brain-computer interface, it really is an interface. So it is the, another access method for individuals to use games or other functions. So we're at this point now where it's slow, and I imagine that the, the next pace in what's happening is to make that detection quicker and to make what it can do faster so that this can be an improvement on some of the technologies that exist now. That's probably where the technology is going in the near term, is making it faster and better recognition, right? Absolutely, and safe and reliable. What do you mean, safe as in it's, because it sounds like it's, at least the non-invasive part sounds pretty safe now, um, but I guess brain surgery is really what's always the dangerous part, right? Right, and by safe I mean that making sure that um, the electrodes that are attaching between the, the cap and a laptop computer that's sitting on your hospital tray in your room um, doesn't fall or doesn't get tangled up with your ventilator. I mean, there's so many other options, uh, so many other things going on in your room that you have to make sure that, the, that this is easy to use and doesn't get doesn't interfere with other things. Right. I guess that make that's a good point. I wouldn't have thought of. You don't want to have to carry around a whole jet pack like or a Ghostbusters pack to do this because that kind of defeats the purpose of making it easy and accessible. So right now it is a Ghostbusters pack, a pack exactly. Which is cool. I mean, everyone wants to be a Ghostbuster, but that's not really what we're going to want for the future. <laughs> right, or everybody wants to be part of a sci-fi flick and this is your opportunity. And um, with computers, I guess part of the issue then is I know my friend Kevin who has ALS. He has eye gaze, and, and it does a lot, which I imagine that brain-computer interface will be able to eventually do. Um, but I remember seeing him somewhere, and he had to reboot his system, and it took a while to reboot because he wasn't able to use the, brain, the um, eye gaze in certain environments. So... Um, is that one of the issues, too, just the general computer software we deal with with just a Windows computer? Yeah, it sure does. And we didn't talk about this at all yet, but right now, when you put on the cap, you have to, sit, you have to teach the computer that this is Melanie's brain that's using the BCI. So everybody's brain has a different rhythm, a different set of specific brain waves, and the computer has to learn my brain waves that are different than your brain waves and what your P300 or selection wave looks like versus what mine looks like. So currently, every time you put on the cap, you have to go through that process again and again. And one of the things for the future is that the BCI will know whose brain this is without having to train it from the start each time. And that, yeah, that's definitely something I wouldn't have thought of. I know that our power wheelchairs 
um, we have to get them personalized for people. And obviously the brain computer, the um, other devices need to, but this is something, I'm not just going to be able to take your brain cap and suddenly it's going to read my thoughts, or not read my thoughts, but be able to do the same work. Right. So it needs to know what your brain waves look like. Also in the future, and we're starting this work now a lot, um, is if you're using it as a speller, we should know what your vocabulary is, just like when you use your smartphone and you're texting and you want to say Philadelphia and you put in PH and Philadelphia comes up as one option. The machine, the BCI should be able to do that as well. It's just like Elisa Brownlee, who you know, talks about how to use just the letter boards. It ends up being like that where they communicate the the person receiving the communications and this where place the computer um, understands the way you think then not just your brain activity it, and, and it knows your customized vocabulary or what you want to communicate about and it also so all of that is a process now besides just so that's where the rehab scientist comes in in addition to the electrical engineer or the neuroscientist. That's where we say, okay, now that we have this really cool technology, how are we going to make it optimized for a person with severe speech and physical impairment? Well, and it also has to make sure that understands your language, right? If you're a Spanish speaker or English or whatever, it's got to make sure that it can translate whatever you're talking about. Correct. So it, it right now doesn't care what language you're speaking or it doesn't care if you're looking at pictures or symbols because um, all it's looking for is the brainwave. But as we include more language models and word prediction, um, like in other speech-generating devices, then that will be important. So... What can this do in the future? Because I've heard things like in the future it can operate your wheelchair for you. It can operate, you can have a whole home basically that's connected to your brain. Not that it's reading your thoughts. As we, we spoke about at the beginning, it's not a thought reading machine. But you'll be so connected without having to be able to use your hands or feet. That's absolutely true. And we'll have a system that you don't need that conductive gel, so you don't need to have itchy hair all the time. And you won't have to have the electrodes go into a computer. There'll be a wireless system that works 100% of the time. And you won't have the Ghostbuster backpack. It'll be a small condensed system that will do what most environmental control units do, what most spellers or um, word processors do, any access that you need for the computer. So you'll be going online to a shopping station and buying um, a new set of curtains because you're tired of looking at the ones that are on your wall. Or if we want to go really sci-fi, you could have a whole robot that does your regular person life while you operate from a brain computer, and it can just be you, your little robot Melanie that goes out and is your own personal cyborg. 
Absolutely. I, I see um, a virtual reality application down in the future. Well, I would like to recommend to you, and I promised on Twitter that I would do this, a book called Locked In by John Scalzi. I don't know if you've heard about it. I have not, and I will get it. It's a fictional book about a disease called Lock-In, not a very imaginative disease name, but um, that's very similar to this, where people use their brain to hack into bot-like things. They have a whole neural network with people who have this disease that they can hack into, and it really speaks not just to the technology, but the, the, the philosophical questions of humanity that people would end up having. Right. Um, because that's Great. something that's we... going to be read by our entire team, Tony. Well, I'll send you the link. I liked it. I like the author a lot um, from other books. But um, that is something that we'll end up having to have some discussions about really what makes us human. Because, you know, we, want, we treat everybody like they're important here, whether they have uh, ALS or a caregiver or, you know, whatever their involvement is. Um, and then realizing that, you know, our connection to each other through this technology as well. It's a deeper question that we don't have to answer today. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, there are individuals who are using BCI for creating artwork, mm -hmm. and that level of humanity we cannot lose. Well, not only are we not losing that, but maybe we're enhancing what being human is. I mean, it's getting us past our limitations so we can, you know, do all the things that we dreamed about doing that maybe we couldn't go the places we couldn't go, etc., to me, that's assistive technology, and we all use it. Yep. And that's a good point. We're using. I'm using assistive technology talking to you. It's just the phone. Yep. So, um, do you have any other exciting thoughts about where we'll be in the next, I don't know, few years or decades um, to support people with ALS in this technology? Um. In the very near future, so next year, every three years, we hold an international BCI meeting. And it's held in Monterey, California. Um, if you go online to bcimeeting.org, you can find out information about it. And I, for me, an exciting piece would be to get involvement from individuals with ALS and their families, care providers, health providers, um, for me especially from the rehab science community, so that we can make all this work really meaningful and functional um, for, uh, for the assistive technology. And I recommend people that have ALS and their caregivers uh, speak to their local clinic teams about how they can get involved in this and other kinds of assistive technology work and research, because there's probably a lot more if you're like myself, that people don't realize about until they ask. Yeah, and I don't think it should be done without um, without the people who are the experts and need it. Right. Uh, so, and then in the future, you'll be able to take over the world with your brain. Well, we're already using our brain. It's just a different use of it. <laughs> Correct. So, well, I really appreciate learning all this. Um, are there... Any best resources you would ask people to look into um, to start reading aside from going to their clinic? Um, besides that website, there are, uh, I've given you during the conversation some go-to places. Um, I certainly can repeat those. So for Invasive Brain Computer Interface, look at BrainGate. 
for non-invasive independent home use, look at the Wadsworth Center. Um, our website actually um, has links to um, all of uh, different resources that individuals might want to examine. I'm at Oregon Health and Science University, um, and our research projects are called Renew, Renew Projects. They stand for Reclaiming Expressive Knowledge in Elders with, and in this case, in Elders with Locked-In Syndrome. Well, there you go. Well, I really appreciate your knowledge and your positivity um, and your great outlook in terms of what we can do to support not only people with ALS, but anyone in these kind of conditions. Uh, the future certainly looks bright, I think. I do, too. And I would also like to thank the people who are funding our work so that I can present this to you. And that would be both the NIH and an institute that's called the National Institute for Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Well, thank you. When people are asking about what is happening with research at the NIH and other places, you know, because sometimes it sounds so nebulous, here are some concrete things that are happening and improvement that we can tangibly see is making a difference and will continue to make a difference. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. Um, and if you again, if anyone has any questions, you can email me, and we'll pass it along to our experts. Um, my email is Tony at alsphiladelphia.org. You can get in touch with us on all social media channels, even Vine and Tumblr and Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, all at alsphiladelphia. That's one word. And you can support our chapter at www.alsphiladelphia.org. You can also find any chapter near you at www.alsa.org. Uh, thank you again, Melanie. Uh, we look forward to more good works with you and all of our um, ALS researchers. My pleasure, and have a good July 4th weekend. All right. Everyone else, I hope you had a good July 4th weekend because we're talking to you from the past. All right. Thank you.